Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Hey guys, before the podcast today, I just wanted to mention a great course that's coming up. This is a great opportunity to learn zygomatic interrogoid implants by our own Arshia Sharafi. He's a good friend of mine. He's been on the podcast. His episode was awesome. You should listen to it. But it is in Southern California on March 18th and 19th, 8.30 to 5 p.m. And it's a cadaver course, so it's going to be awesome. You can look it up through 4M Institute. And you can contact me or him as well if you have other questions. But please look into this and try to go if you can because it's going to be awesome. All right. Enjoy the episode today, guys. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Michael Markowitz. He is an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Buffalo, New York. Michael, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me on, Grant. Yeah, for sure. I've been looking forward to talking with you, kind of know you distantly through the University of Illinois and awesome to kind of connect with you. My first question for you is if you can just kind of give us a brief history of your training and your current practice setup. Sure. Yeah. As I was just telling you, Grant, thanks for having me on. I uh, have heard a lot about this podcast and I know everyone listens to it and the residents around the students. So I'm excited to be a part of it. I think so starting off in the beginning, I did my dental school training in Buffalo, New York at the University of Buffalo. I took a one-year hiatus and went off to Boston and completed a master's in public health in epidemiology and biostats. Spent some time at Mass General Hospital and then came back and completed dental school and then went out to Oregon to Oregon Health and Science University where completed residency, general surgery, and medical school. And then from there, knew I wanted to do a fellowship and was lucky enough to go to Orlando at the Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children where I did a pediatric cleft and craniofacial fellowship, and then just went north to Jacksonville at the University of Florida with Dr. Fernandez and completed a fellowship in head and neck oncology and reconstructive surgery. And then landed in Chicago where you and I got to meet a little bit and talk. And then where really there was just a wonderful place to start a career. And I think I really got lucky to be in a place where I wanted to be, a city I wanted to be, and really a bunch of partners and with a boss who I wanted to be with, uh, Michael Maloro. He was incredibly supportive and really very quickly, you know, I always tell residents and fellows coming out, if you're an oral maxillofacial surgeon who does cancer, you want to get busy and pretty soon you just really are busy because, you know, walks in your door and you have self-referrals and you have referrals from your partners and from other providers and other dentists as well. So that got really busy and was really able to have a lot of fun working with the team there. Built a quite busy practice in head and neck cancer and with uh, reconstruction, obviously trauma and craniofacial. And at the time, I'm from Buffalo and I was coming here about once a month just to do, they needed hand and collective craniofacial surgery at, at the Children's Hospital. 
So I was doing that and, you know, really had no intention of moving back to Buffalo, but actually, you know, made me an offer I couldn't refuse with becoming the head of the department here, being a part of the department, co-director of the Cranium Facial Center, and then practicing at Roswell Park, which is where I do all my cancer and uh, reconstruction, which is a really unique cancer center. So currently, you know, my practice is an academic practice. You know, we have a couple partners who do the full scope of oral maxillofacial surgery. You know, any given week or day, we'll be doing a head neck oncology case, a cancer case and recon case versus a cleft case or a craniofacial case or just your typical jaw surgery case uh, or sometimes trauma as well. And so that's kind of where I'm at now and hasn't changed much. Uh, maybe has gotten a, little, a bit busier, but it's kind of a, a fun practice. That's awesome. And can you tell us just a little bit about how you decided to do a fellowship and maybe a little bit about your experience doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think everyone thinks about it a little bit. I think, you know, we all like doing surgery, the full scope of, of our specialty. And I knew, actually, ironically, before going to residency, I knew I had a strong interest in cleft and craniofacial surgery. In fact, the office I worked at had Jeff Posnick's book on cranial maxillofacial surgery in young adults and in children. And so I would pick it up and look at it, look at the pictures and see, you know, craniofacial surgeries and so on. And I'm like, that's, that's what I want to do. And then, you know, you go to residency and you get jaded and you get burnt out and you go to medical school, but I still had a strong interest. But you know, at Oregon, we had a very strong cancer and recon program and really just amazing people who were really phenomenal mentors, such as Brian Bell and Eric Dirks and Mark Engelstead and Kevin Arce. You know, the list goes on. And most of those were oncologic surgeons. And I think it really had a strong effect on me and very quickly got the itch to do, the, to do that type of surgery. I think like a lot, I considered another residency to see how that might aid me in being able to do certain types of surgeries and maybe certain types of fellowships. I was able to go during medical school and spend some time in Orlando where I ended up going for a pediatric fellowship. And then a week after that, went up to Jacksonville and spent a week there. And from then I was really hooked and I knew, knew I wanted to do that and went through, had supportive staff such as, you know, all of us had, was able to, you know, write and contribute on those topics and really just got more into it. And so that's what happened. And then went to Orlando to start the pediatric fellowship, went up to Jacksonville. And I think, you know, after you do those, I really never look back. And I think it was one of the best things I ever did. And I feel fortunate to be able to train at both those programs and with the faculty there. That's awesome. Very cool. And how's things going as the chair? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you're kind of on the younger end to be the chair of a program. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So <laughs> definitely, I you are correct. When I was offered the job, I thought the same thing and still probably think the same thing. I always used to joke because you know I would get out of a long oncology case, recon case, especially when I was on my own. And then Nick Callahan, who was really a great pickup at UIC partner there, was able to lighten the load a little bit. But Early on, I was doing everything as far as, you know, resection and recon. And I would joke because when the residents were closing, I would start checking emails and I would see these hundred emails and I would see Michael Maloro and all the emails. And I would joke with him because by the end of the day, six o'clock or so, when I would check the emails, usually the problems in those emails were solved. And 
and actually, I was just kind of copied as a peripheral. Hey, Mike, just FYI, Michael's an excellent administrator. You know, he really manages his time well, manages his people well. And so it's a joke. I wouldn't have to do that, right? And so, but ironically now, such as nights like tonight, you know, you get done with cases and you'll have the 100, 200 emails in your inbox. And the majority of them I actually have to address now. So it's been really interesting such days like today where, you know, the dean who hired me, who, who just left and, and our new dean, give a very long leash. You know, they let me miss a lot of conferences where the other administrators go to. I just send someone else in my place. You know, the things I thought were really important were interviews, you know, matching good candidates and interviewing good candidates. And I'm really proud of that. I think we really have increased our applicant pool immensely. We've increased the, you know, we have a wonderful group of residents and our scores and everything have just gone really through the roof and higher. So that's something I'm really happy with. I think things that worried me were interviews, matching, graduation, and then accreditation, which that's coming up in June. So I'll let you know if we're, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know if we're still around in July. But those are the things I thought either I could you know, screw up or just keep going with. So I think actually the, the administration role has been the biggest challenge. But it's been the most welcome one because it's just something very new. And I think we all like new things. And, you know, you and I were talking, Grant, how you do this podcast that has takes so much time and has so much so many individuals and, you know, on it. I think, you know, we all want a new challenge. And this certainly has been a new one. I mean, the surgery is always there, but this is definitely a new thing. And this is kind of the baby now is making this a great program. So that's been the most encouraging and discouraging, I think. The last thing would be that, you know, like anything with administration, you feel like some days you have a lot of meetings, you talk a lot, and you sometimes feel like you accomplish nothing. Right. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's almost two steps forward, three back sometimes. But I think things like, you know, we had a guaranteed remodel in our department, which was a really large sum of financial interest of the school that was guaranteed. And when I came here, the state cut back funding just five months after I got here because COVID hit. So we're working on that now again, new faculty hires. And again, those are all new things that are really exciting. So stay tuned, I guess, on that. <laughs> nice. And it's a dual degree program, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It's always been actually since about its inception and maybe just a couple of years after that. Okay. And you have two openings a year. We do. We have two openings. You know, as you know, adding another spot is very tough. We definitely have the volume now to add another spot, but it's easier to add a non-categorical spot. And we definitely have had the need. So we went from one non-categorical spot to accepting three now. So we take three non-cats and two categorical residents per year. Cool. That's great. And what is your program heavy in, in regards to, I mean, clearly, of course, heading that cancer because you're there, but what other things are involved with what you guys do? That's a good question. We're trying to make it a very even oral and maxillofacial surgery program. I think that, you know, truly our specialty is one here. It's not like other countries, especially in Europe, that separate them. And I think it's really important to not be the so-called cancer program, which I know residents worry about, right? Because although I want them all to do fellowship training and would love for them to go out and do all this stuff, I, I think the majority are going to go into private practice and we have to train broad scope people who can do everything, but can also take a tooth out, do implants. So definitely I do some of that. We have other people who do more. So I think 
There's no real focus. It's a great question. I think cancer has gotten heavier, but we are by far not among the busiest cancer programs in the country. And I think cleft craniofacial lends itself well to orthognathics and jaw surgery and, you know, maybe different osteotomies, but, you know, we do bread and butter orthognathics, which that's actually the thing that has been the slowest. Now it's very busy uh, with orthognathics because that's the one thing, unlike day one, cancer was ready to go, cleft craniofacial is ready to go, orthognathics, as you know, you can see a consult and might not be ready for a year, year and a half. So that's actually the thing now that has gotten really busy. You know, I think we all maybe do or do not want to do more TMJ. <laughs> um, I think we're not super TMJ heavy here, although I, I don't know, but a few programs that are. Definitely, we do a little bit of cosmetics, but probably would like to do more. So I think those are things probably to focus on. But I think it's a great question, Grant. I think probably we're pretty evenly focused on everything throughout the week. Nice. That's awesome. And how cool is it that you grew up in Buffalo, right? I mean, and that opportunity was there for you to kind of go back to where you're originally from. It was really special. Again, the hard part about leaving Chicago where I, I had my first job was that, you know, it's one thing if you're unhappy with a place and you go somewhere, but that was not the case, which is what made it very challenging because I loved everyone I worked with. I loved my job. I loved, you know, people who, you know, I was with in Chicago. So everything was really great, but it was an opportunity to, you know, be closer to home or at least where I'm from. And, you know, this is a time especially where I think it's very important with family and, and whatnot, you know, to be around. So it actually worked out very well. And so it's definitely unique because I think one of the things that you worry about, you hear people who stay on where they train or go where they've been and they're the student forever, right? Or they're the resident forever. And, you know, we have in the department, I think it's, we're all pretty even, you know, no one's ultimately, I guess, decisions get made by someone, but we try to take everyone's consideration. And some people in faculty are older than me. And so that's been interesting, but actually it's worked out great. And I can't ask for the current group we have to be any more supportive. And also, I think, you know, it's like anything in a private practice, I'm sure that you're in and in, in partnership, you know, you want everyone to pitch in where needed. And it's nice to have a little family atmosphere. And, you know, the residents, you know, I mean, you know, you train with people who, who can be hard. <laughs> but I think you, you know, it's a serious business. We take care of patients who are sick. But at the same time, I would hope, you know, things are serious. But at the same time, we can also have fun as well. So it's been good. Yeah, that's awesome. And are you doing a primary cleft repair and a lot of pediatric craniofacial type cases? Yeah. So this week, last week, you know, would include primary lip repair, pal repair, cleft bone grafting, craniosynostosis, complex craniosynostosis. So yeah, doing the full gamut here. Really, that's another aspect that was a draw in that I think we all want to work with people who we enjoy working with. And the team here is an ACPA approved team, which, you know, now really lucky to be the co-director of uh, with another, actually a plastic surgeon who has been phenomenal and very supportive and has been here for a while. And so we tend to split, you know, all the craniofacial gets done by our service here. And then, so all the bony work for the most part, the lips and palates get almost split down the middle. So given a you know, week, maybe give or take more to me or more to someone else, but we kind of split those and it's been very collegial and 
working together in the same clinic. And I think, you know, it's always good to treat these children in a team atmosphere. So, you know, as you know, the ACPA, we just reaccredited last year. They are very strict on that stuff. So they actually pointed out something that was missing. We didn't have a good psychologist on our team for one particular focus. And so it was really good. So it actually forced us to go out there and recruit someone from, from the university to help out in, in that aspect. So I think with that being said, we have five speech pathologists, social workers. We have a prosthodontist. We had an orthodontist who did nasal alveolar molding. So it's really a good comprehensive group. Yeah. And that's cool as well. I'm sure you're, and, and that's probably kind of maybe unique to your program. I'm sure there's other programs, but I don't think there's a lot who provide those cases for residents to get like that close to the case and really see what's going on. And, you know, as far as pediatric and cleft repair and and craniofacial stuff, and you don't have a fellowship there, right? So you're probably working with your chief residents and they're right there with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't have a fellowship as of now. (laughs) So that's, so yeah, that takes more work than I thought. <laughs> so we have a fellow at the cancer center who's an American Head and Neck Society fellow, and he scrubs on all my major cases. You know, if it's you know any kind of recon, he or she will will scrub on those. But with the residents, and they all know that was the agreement that you know we would help to work with the fellows, and I think it's a good educational experience to be exposed to our specialty. But at the same time, it wouldn't take away from the experience. And to be honest, some of the residents, I think, <laughs> I think like it because then they don't have to, you know, some, right. yeah, some, as, as you know, <laughs> uh, this is in Chicago, some are really interested in certain cases and some aren't. So I, yeah. I, I don't think they mind. But no, with the cleft and craniofacial, that is always with our residents who are first assist. Some, once in a while, some other specialties will come in to hang out during those cases, but Always our residents are, you know, say, say for tomorrow, it'll be our chief resident intern with the neurosurgery resident and their intern, you know, hanging out for a craniofacial case. So it's good. It builds a collaborative team. So for dental students that are listening, can you just kind of give us a basic summary of how to become a cleft and craniofacial surgeon? Sure. Yeah. There's really three avenues to do that as far as specialties. And that would be plastic surgery, which would be the most common, most likely, otolaryngology, and then Austin oral maxillofacial surgery. And then in, in either specialty, you can do this stuff without fellowship training. It becomes more challenging than just 10 years ago, where a lot of hospitals, even here, they want you, if you check that box, they want you, in either specialty, they want you to have a fellowship. And that's true in head neck oncology, microvascular for sure, but definitely even here in pediatric cleft and facial surgery. So if you're going to do one of those specialties first, you probably would have to do a fellowship. Most are one year in duration. There's only a few that are two. It's, it's very rare. So, you know, for oral maxillofacial surgery, which I think is a great choice, dental school, residency, and then fellowship. Plastic surgery would, would be the same thing. And then ENT as well, just doing residency and, and, and training. And I think a lot of people think about other specialties and the training or opportunity they could offer to do this. And certainly sometimes the road to doing this type of surgery might be easier through another specialty. But I think it's all about content. And I was really fortunate when I was applying for fellowship, probably interviewed at about five plastic surgery pediatric craniofacial fellowship programs. And they were wonderful and they were really busy. 
And in the end, I was actually very lucky with Orlando. I was given the chance to do that. And if there was good opportunities to, you know, maybe look at those. And to be honest, I looked at the volume and I looked at the volume that Ramon Ruiz was doing in Orlando and the primary lips he was doing and pallets and bone grafting and then cranestonostosis. And it was incredible. And I think, and I looked at the volume of other fellowships, especially in plastic surgery. And to even compared to a few of them, it was a no brainer. So I think the content's definitely important. You know, and, and plastics has about 25 to 30 fellowships, but there's not a lot of jobs out there for any kind of cleft craniofacial surgery, and even in our specialty or in plastics. So I think that's something to consider, you know, when you're looking is what the job market is. So some people would say, well, if I can't get a job, you know, should you apply? Should you go ahead and do a fellowship? And I definitely think that it can't hurt. You know, I definitely think it makes you a better surgeon. People are, well, well, how does cancer surgery and recon relate to craniofacial surgery? And I think there's definitely techniques that you could draw from both and make yourself a better surgeon. You know, I think in the end, more training can't hurt. You know, you don't want to waste time, but you also, I think if you invest in your training, it's, you know, it's never the wrong choice. Yeah. And I assume for most fellowships in cleft and craniofacial, they want you to have the MD. Is that correct? It's a great question because we have a couple of residents here. We don't have a non-MD track, but we have matriculated people into the program due to attrition previously. And there's a couple who are stellar residents who, and I know people ask this all the time, you know, talk to students and residents across the country who don't have MDs. And I think actually there's a lot, a couple really well-known younger people in our specialty who do this type of surgery at a very high volume and at a very high level. But I think it's definitely more challenging. So I would never want to discourage that. I think fellowships, some limit due to licensure reasons. It can be challenging to license someone for a fellowship year in a non-MD track. But I think a lot will take it. And I think there's definitely opportunities. And so there's definitely young people, definitely the pillars in our specialty, a lot of single degrees, Tim Turvey's and so on are just giants who do this type of surgery. But I think Younger people are doing it, but I guess I would tell residents it's challenging to do this even when you have an MD. It could be a little more challenging if you don't. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And so in your case, it was, you know, four of dental, six at Oregon, and then it was the one year in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And then the one year in Jacksonville as well. In Jacksonville. Okay. Yeah. So it was good. (laughs) Yeah, that's terrific. I mean... It's such a great uh, opportunity. I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners, you know, who are interested in this type of surgery and would love to reach out and ask you questions about it. And I'm glad you kind of talked a little bit about how the job market is kind of a niche thing where it's pretty specialized and there's not like, you know, tons of opportunities, but certainly I'm sure there are some that come up every now and then. But yeah, I don't think you can go wrong getting that training. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had your old boss, Mark Ingolstadt, on the podcast a month or two ago. And how awesome that must have been for you to train with him. You know, I only know him through different conversations, not spending a significant time with him. But he seems like just kind of the ultimate educator type of a guy who really cares about educating, you know, the actual process. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in academics who are there maybe more for the surgery and less for the actual teaching (laughs) of residents. 
And, you know, I don't know. So I'm sure that was cool. Any comments or <laughs> about him and your experience? That's a whole separate podcast, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mark is someone who came to Oregon probably when I was a second year, just as Kevin Arce left and went back to Mayo Clinic, that which was a big loss. But Mark came along and just was incredible to get to know him. As you know, he's incredibly articulate. He's intelligence beyond belief. Just when you talk to him, you know, you always kind of learn something new and it's interesting. And he just has a way with words. You know, I always call him the king of the analogies because, uh, <laughs> and he knows it because he always, you know, he's so witty that he can very quickly compare something in surgery or in everyday life to something else. And it always makes sense. He was an incredible educator. And a lot of things I do now, I, you know, we always repeat our teachers and our mentors and I repeat all of them. But, you know, the way he does a cleft bone graft, I mean, really it just certain things. Mark has an incredible way of making things that are complex to someone, such as the learning, you know, the resident who's in training, and making it very simple. So he's a master surgeon for what he does, which I think things that he's well known for and does well is trauma, orthonathics. I mean, again, orthonathics where I think it's this kind of like abyss where it's very confusing as a resident. It's, you know, this big dark hole that we don't know much about when you're learning and the cuts for a sagittal split and so on. Mark can make things so simple. And he has a logical way of teaching you during that. And I think that might have to do with his association with the AO and how much he teaches there. But he's just incredible. Trauma, the same thing. You'd be doing trauma with Mark as a resident and he you know, again, putting the pieces back together, he would have a very simple way of doing things. And he didn't ever make it look hard. And he made you do it in a way that was easy. And I think that the thing as an educator you really try to work on is that the easy thing to do, you know, is just to do the surgery or do the case or make the tough move. The very challenging thing to do, and Mark was excellent at this, was to instruct someone to do something that's maybe a bit above outside their comfort zone. And He's just a really good educator. And like you said, he probably enjoys the teaching almost more than the surgery in that he, you know, he's very involved now, as you know, in bioinformatics and so on. So he really enjoys that part of it. And I think he's always looking for the next thing that excites him. And who knows what that'll be next. But he's an incredible speaker. And uh, I'm sure that was a great podcast. And I'm sure I heard a lot of things before. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. And I'm sure some of that rubbed off on you and you're able to teach your residents in similar fashion. You know, one question I wanted to ask you about is in regards to treating kids, children. You know, I think there's a lot in our specialty and maybe because a lot of us don't get tons of exposure to treating kids in residency that there's this general kind of fear we have of treating kids. And, you know, we prefer to stick to teenagers and up and it's just simpler and and, you know, if something goes wrong on a, an 80-year-old person, well, it's not as bad as something going wrong, you know, on, on a two-year-old or something. How has your experience been? You know, is that kind of a harrowing experience to work with kids and see complications and deal with all that? Or how is it? Yeah, I, you know, I think you said it, Grant. I think children can be incredibly rewarding to work with. And to be honest, you see this, I'm sure, in your practice, they're actually easier at some time right? Because they don't have the predetermined fears that adults have. And this could be for a tooth extraction. You know, we had a kid recently who we did a biopsy on in clinic and 
he was the best patient ever. And he actually thanked us afterwards. And, you know, I mean, actually, you could tell he was in a little bit of pain during, but we were talking about today with, you know, with, with our resident team, how just a joy. And I think the parents rub off a lot on children. And so I think, as you know, the difficulty with children is that you have two patients, you know, you have them and then you also have the parents. And as you know, as well, the parents can be the more challenging patient to actually deal with sometimes. And not because it's anything wrong from them. You know, you try to put yourself in their shoes and they're just a concerned parent and some react differently. And But it can add a lot to discussions because even that same parent who might be having a procedure might have one minute worth of questions, but now it's their three-year-old and they're going to ask you questions for a half an hour, you know? And so I think just having the patience with that. But I think also there's something to be said for being able to take the kid, you know, child to the operating room. It's one thing to do them in your office. And I have no problem with that. We do a lot of children's procedures in our office, but it certainly... If you need to, I think going to the OR is fine. And if it could be for a cleft or, you know, maybe a simple tooth extraction. But I think it's certainly something that's really good to be exposed to. And I know the faculty session at Amos is really working on that. And they're trying to make sure that exposure to children is placed at a high priority, I think, for training. I think the problem is just, it's just hard to get that training. You know, it doesn't have to be cleft and craniofacial surgery or anything pathology. It could be just exposure for anesthetics. And that's one thing I think they did well in Chicago. I know we did a lot of it in Oregon was, you know, exposure to anesthesia in children. Because, as you know, it's just a different ball game and we have to keep things safe. So I think it's definitely a different world. And I think it's something that should be placed as a priority with our specialty for exposure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's awesome. I think it's great to hear that you say that it is rewarding. I'm sure it's pretty awesome to see some of the pretty significant changes and really make a course correction in a kid's life by fixing them up. That's pretty awesome. But I'm sure there has to be a level of patience with the parents and the whole situation because I'm a father of six kids and I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like to have, you know, a newborn or two or three year old that's dealing with a major health problem. Like, thank goodness I have never had to experience that, but that's kind of, you know, one of my greatest fears is my kids having an illness like that. So I'm sure there's a lot of parents that are in a frazzled state of mind that you have to kind of take by the hand. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's interesting because like anything we do every day, we take it for granted. But I think, you know, I have to think about if, if like my child had to go through some of the stuff that we do. I think, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how I would feel. And I think we take for granted that, you know, the things that we describe to parents and some just say, okay, sounds good. It's like, you know, but I'm not sure if you heard me, you know, this is what we <laughs> want to do. Right. <laughs> so just to, just to reiterate. So, and some parents are, you know, we take all comers, you know, with patients, you know, and as all of us do. And some parents are just over the top concerned, which is fine. You just have to help manage them through that some it's incredible we'll say you know okay sounds good and so i think it's always a honestly a surprising but but it's always really interesting to see you know i'll just say i think the one thing that we offer in our specialty is the functional aspects of craniofacial care and by that you know if it's a roban sequence kid who needs some distraction i think that's something that we do very well you know and something that most maxillofacial surgeons can do and for sure, you know, lip repair or, or palate is very functional, especially the palate repair. But that is something that we can offer that in three years, and we've seen these now where the kid's thriving and he's going to school and 
you know, speaking well and no ET tube anymore or trach. It's really phenomenal to see that. So I think that's one thing that are especially, you know, I think we should all be proud of that we focus on the functional aspects of, of growth and development and surgeries for these kids. That's awesome. Very, very cool. I mean, I guess one of the last questions is just what advice do you have for, you know, young students, residents, surgeons who want to be involved in cases like this? Yeah, I think just seek it out. And, you know, I think take advantage of all that you can with the program that you're in. So your first goal is to get into into a residency, hopefully the one that you want. But if you go to a program that doesn't do a lot of a particular area of, of our specialty that you want, you know, that's what fellowships are for. And so I think you see amazing surgeons in these subspecialties who come from programs who maybe don't do a lot of that particular surgery and, you know, so to do a fellowship. I think, you know, the one thing that was always instilled in me is we have such an amazing specialty in that in five years, if this gets old, you can go and do complex implantology, which is very rewarding and teeth and titanium and so on. And, and that's great. And you know, that might happen. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's always amazing to me. You know, I was told by this in my interview at Oregon by, by Brian Bell, who I think is really wise and kind surgeon, a teacher. You know, he's, it's kind of funny where, you know, it's like we, we're in the mouth every day. We treat everything in the mouth. That's our area of surgery, you know, lesions, tumors, whatever. But for some reason, when the diagnosis comes back as a cancer, we're done. You know, and we, not anymore, but at the, at the time, we kind of will refer to someone else to treat that. Whereas we probably feel the most comfortable treating that because that's our wheelhouse where we are every day. And I think the same thing can be said, you know, which always stayed with me for craniofacial surgery. There is no other specialty other than orthopedics that cuts bone more than we do. Whether you're doing third molars, you're doing implants, you know, we're always cutting something in the maxillofacial skeleton. And I think we do it quite well. But as soon as you go, you know, and we do trauma, I think very well. And I think that's pretty well respected. We do mandible fractures, upper, you know, mid-face fractures, upper face fractures, and frontal sinus, NOE fractures, so on, cranial. But once it becomes bony surgery involving a, a congenital deformity, you know, it changes, you know. So we all of a sudden are, are not the experts in that. And certainly I have no problem with other specialties doing that type of surgery because they do it very well. But we can cut a sagittal split, which is probably the hardest procedure to do in, I think, all of craniofacial surgery. But, you know, we can't do a frontal orbital advancement or cranial vault remodeling. So I think it's always stuck with me that I think we are in a poised position to do this type of surgery very well, whether it be cancer resection, reconstruction, or pediatric cleft craniofacial surgery. I mean, that's where we are every day. So I think just, you know, that's an important thing to always remember. And I think that's why the specialty will thrive. And I think students and residents should continue to be interested and to try to do this type of surgery. That's awesome. Yeah, really, really good points. And it's good to hear your perspective on that because it makes a lot of sense. And I think that will resonate with a lot of our listeners. If there are people out there, you know, who kind of are more interested in this, are you okay if they contact you? Absolutely. No. And my number and email are pretty public. So they're all, <laughs> they're all over the place. So anytime. Okay. Well, good, good. We end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So we're, I'm going to bring the heat to you now. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> no, just kidding. They're, they're really easy questions. The first one is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? It's the book I am rereading now, which I know that you have read because I just checked uh, a few weeks ago, is Being Mortal. Yes. By Atul Gawande, who is an amazing author. And uh, it's a really good read for a lot of good reasons. And uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. He's one of my favorite authors. I've read, I think, all of his books, but really good at storytelling, but also bringing in really pertinent lessons for all of us as healthcare providers. Absolutely. Very cool. Next question is, what non-oral surgery thing do you do in your life or have you done that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? I don't know if I do much to help out my daily oral surgery skills. Uh, to be honest, I just had this discussion today is, is to try to be active. And I think I was talking to another surgeon today, actually a general surgeon who does head neck surgery. And I think one thing that we all feel bad about is taking some time for ourselves and going for a run or working out or being active. But one thing I am realizing as I age and the body's breaking down a bit is that if you don't take care of yourself and of you know, your body, it's not being selfish. And if it's just 20 minutes a day, which is sometimes all you can render, I think if you're not taking care of yourselves, you really can't take the best care of your patients and of your friends and family. So I think it's worthwhile to take some time for yourself and just whether it be a run or or workout or just some meditation or reading. And just, I think that clears the mind a bit and lets you be a better surgeon. Yeah, that's a great one. So important. Next question, which you may or may not be able to answer, but being from New York, I would hope you can answer this. What is your favorite episode of Seinfeld? (laughs) (laughs) You've obviously been talking to Dr. Maloro. Uh, (laughs) Yes. There is so many. I never met anyone who knows that show more than him. And I think he says the same about me. But anyway, that's a tough one. I think, you know, we all like soup Nazi. I think close talker, you know, and now it's on Netflix, right? So, you know, I have pointless TV in the background, which I love during email time. It's on, I think I was just actually talking to someone today. I was trying to, when you tell someone who doesn't know a joke about Seinfeld, it, it's tough. But I think what George advises the swimmer Elaine is dating on how to live the rest of his years being bald. I think, <laughs> I think, I think that's a classic one. So they're all good. Oh my gosh. Yes, equally as good as when George tells his girlfriend that he's a marine biologist and <laughs> the situation arises for him to save a beached whale. It's just so hilarious. And he pulls the golf pulls ball the out. Pulls the golf ball out, yep. That's <laughs> a blowhole. <laughs> Jeez, man, so funny. Well, good. I'm glad that tells us all that you're a well-rounded human being if you've watched Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. oh my gosh this next one too is probably been a while for you but which forceps do you use to extract tooth number five when was the last time you extracted tooth number five i've extracted i've taken out a tooth number five recently okay i mean honestly whatever they have right it would be the upper universal or if they're in a line down position like supine maybe even the ash forceps yeah. Okay. Maloro was a big ash man and I think that rubbed off on us, but, uh, you say he was an ash man. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Another good Seinfeld episode. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that's what usually what I do. You have to have a wide opening to use the ash because of that 90 degree makes it just 
need, require more room compared to the upper universal. But anyways, Ash is nice because it's it usually can grip a tooth better than a, than a universal. Agreed. Last question. What is your favorite quote? Do you have a quote or a mantra or something you come back to? Ooh, you know, I'm a big, it's funny. Someone's, I had this on my desk. It's one everyone uses now, but it's the old Wayne Gretzky quote. And I'm a hockey Gretzky fanatic. So you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And I think that holds true. And I think, I think that's true in life or in, in profession. If you, if you don't give it a shot, you'll never know. So that's probably it. <laughs> Yeah, love that. As a side note, that's also a line in the movie Uncle Drew. I don't know if she's watched uh, Kyrie. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Reggie Miller leans into um, the actor who's kind of a guy who you know doesn't want to take the shot, and he says, "Young blood, uh, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take." So, but probably a close second is you know if you're not first, you're last which is Ricky Bobby, Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights. So <laughs> that's, good. that's a good one. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, that's classic quotes. Good food for thought for us uh, to, to chew on. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to talk, give our listeners a little kind of experience with your program. Sounds like it's just getting better each year. And that's, that's awesome to hear. It makes me happy. This is fun, Grant. Thank you so much for having me. Yep, my pleasure. Well, cool. Have a good rest of the night, and let's reconnect sometime. I appreciate it. Sounds good, man. Okay, talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstuckey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.